Tom Gerhardt and Dan Provost are the guys behind Studio Neat. On this show, we discuss entrepreneurship, product design, and all of the ups and downs that come with running a small business. I'm Mike Hurley, and this is Thoroughly Considered. So the Kickstarter campaign is now over. It's officially over. Uh, congratulations on your success. Thank you. Thanks. You know, it was it was real hit and miss for a second there. You know, we weren't sure if you were gonna gonna push it over the line at the end. But you had, I think, this is your most funded pen, well, project, I should say, of all time. Right? Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yep. By a dollar yep. amount, yeah. I thought you were gonna say by a dollar, by one dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was how? What's the difference? Kind of what was the previous one that was the second highest? It's like two hundred and eight. Which okay. was the the new glyph, yeah. The new glyph. So this is this is quite a significant difference above. I mean, it didn't hit your highest backer number, and I actually want to ask you about that in a little bit. But I'm assuming that you're both thrilled by this, right? Like, you know, I'm assuming that you're like really, really excited by this result. You are correct yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> how how could I have guessed uh, that you would be excited about that? So when a campaign ends, what do you do? Like when the Kickstarter campaign is is ending, when it is done, like what happens for you two? Like what you, what sort of things are you going through? Are you do you pop a champagne bottle? Like what happens? No, we've never done that. Uh, what do you mean? We of, did that. We did that for the very first Glyph campaign, but it wasn't when we ended. It was like after the first day. Yeah. Yeah, so I was going to say, the celebration usually occurs when we cross the funding goal. Right, okay. But when the, when the project ends, it's kind of less of a kind of celebratory thing. And I understand that because the campaign has been going on for so long at this point, right? Like, it's just the end of mm-hmm. the long process. I get why the celebration occurs at funding goal time, because that means it's happening. Like, it's it's... Mm-hmm. This campaign has been happening for like 30 days or something, you know, like however long it's been, yeah. right? This has been like a done deal for that amount of time. And then it's just a case, I guess, of just it ticking along until it's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, basically, I mean, even the first day, usually we can like figure out if it's going to like work out or not. And so that's really the like celebration. And then it's like immediately, okay, let's start like, let's start working on it in earnest. And so that's what we've been doing uh, is just like you know working on it uh like kind of heads down pedal to the metal um so it's really i mean it's nice now that it's over because we kind of we really know you know how many we have to make and everything's really kind of settled so that's cool um but yeah i mean you know really it was just kind of like we started the kind of the production process and now we're like just continuing to go for it so doesn't feel like a huge change on Friday. It's not like you will like have people waiting on the phone, you know, like any minute yeah. now I'm going to call you and then you've got to press the button to begin because like, it's not like that, right? Like it's just a case of, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, yes, you can now put in a final order, but I'm expecting you were kind of estimating within a range when you were looking at stuff and, and now it's a case of things going, but they're not all necessarily going to start immediately from when the, the campaign's over. Like these things have timelines. Yeah, well, and really, you know, uh, the quantity, like the quantity we're at that we're ordering because the campaign was a like a great success, 
ch like changed a little bit what we're going our plan for production and um like some of the choices we make so really since the, fir the first you know week or so of the campaign we've been kind of working through figuring out those changes and so we still haven't you know, placed any like official orders or anything yet. And we'll, you know, we'll probably still won't do anything like that for some time uh, because we're really just finalizing everything and, you know, picking suppliers and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's not, uh, it, you know, it's funny, like the, the, the changes in quantity really change kind of uh, the kind of decisions we can make with production. And, and I mean, even down to packaging, I mean, quantity like literally changes everything. So it kind of, it's kind of like we planned on designing it a certain way and making it a certain way, and we're basically doing the same thing, but uh, f like the subtle technical details kind of change when we have a higher quantity. And I guess that kind of knowledge, that is what comes with having done this a bunch of times, right? I don't. Yeah, it's hard for me to really answer that question, but yeah, definitely, I think something that comes with experience for sure. So I mentioned the, the 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 pledge amount, like so the the backers, the amount of backers that you had, and this isn't the project with the most backers of all time. Uh, that that goes to our friend uh, the cosmonaut, and the cosmonaut had six thousand one hundred and ninety two backers for its campaign, and the cosmonaut was, I think, your second Kickstarter campaign, right? Mm hmm. So, uh, have you become horrifically unpopular since then to now? Like, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think partially the. I would guess that, like, the price point has gone up. And also, the Cosmonaut was really strange because it was like, pay what you want for mm. a while in the campaign. So, that was a real outlier in, like, a lot of ways. Yeah, half of the backers pledged the $1 or more tier, which was labeled as pay what you want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was a weird experiment. Um, <laughs> so that's like a real outlier. And then I would say even the first, like the first glyph, the very first campaign, I think probably has the second most backers. And that was also an outlier because we got so much press because it was like the first Kickstarter yeah. project that had ever really blown up for like a product. So that was also a little bit of an outlier. And then I think after that, we've kind of settled into... uh this like range of backers and and have kind of been slowly growing in a way so mm -hmm. um you know it's i it's good i mean i you know i could see some if we have a different kind of product and it has some like larger appeal or something i could see us getting way more backers but you know this is a this number of backers is pretty comfortable in that it allows us to make things at scale um but it's not like a crazy huge it's not scary yeah it's not like you know 20,000 or like 50,000 backers, which would be uh, pr like a lot different probably feeling. So mm -hmm. it's, I don't know. It's a good scale. Like I'm very, like the numbers that we're doing with this pin feel comfortable and like big. If we had to make 10 times as many, it would, it would cause problems. Yeah, there are, there are problems with success and I'm expecting that you experience these problems with the Glyph and the Cosmonaut, right? Because they were new, right? I mean, now, mm -hmm. now you can take these numbers. You can take three to 5,000 and, and this is something you've done before, but my expectation of when, when Studio Neat was beginning and, and starting out, that those numbers were far more than you were able to easily cope with. 
Yes and no. I mean, what was nice about the original glyph is it was such a simple object to make and there was no assembly uh, aside from putting the glyph into the packaging, which was extraordinarily simple. Uh, we didn't have to really interact with it in any way. Um, whereas this pen is, is actually going to be a pretty interesting test of the limits of kind of quantity of what we can take on because as of right now and this this could definitely change but there are some steps in the assembly process that we think we're going to do like the two of us oh. um and and so yeah so it's gonna be it we're kind of like planning well there's like a few steps with the assembly of the mechanism that we may do or ideally we could get whoever makes it to you know do that as part of the process but we're pretty sure the kind of final final assembly aka like you know putting the spring and the refill and the mechanism in the body like basically just screwing it all together uh, and then you know putting it in the packaging uh that we will probably do um and so that's gonna i think that's gonna be a pretty interesting test of like is this terrible <laughs> or like is you know is this like a reasonable right. thing to do because you know because we we've kind of been getting into the habit of doing our own final assembly so like for the material docs and for canopy uh those two specifically we kind of do the the final packaging um and that's been fine. Uh, that's worked pretty well. And the quantities have been low enough to where it hasn't been, it's, it, you know, it's not too big of a problem. But, you know, in this initial run, we're going to be putting together several thousand. So I think that's going to be a real test of how feasible that is to continue doing in the future. So we'll see. So I have some questions on this. Um, one, you know, you mentioned you're not new to final assembly or some, some measure of assembly. Mm-hmm. Is that true for the amount? Like, have you ever been involved, past, like the two of you, in the assembly of a of a product where you are initially assembling? I don't know, probably around five to six thousand of these things. I'm assuming, right? Because you had three thousand backers, but that's not three thousand pens, right? Yeah, no, uh, no, not that many. I think the most we've ever done, kind of at one time, was like around a thousand, uh, or maybe a little bit more, but. Uh, yeah, this will be more than that. So, uh, so we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. It's, it's funny because it kind of provides us an opportunity to like, because we've never kind of gone all in on assembly stuff. We always kind of, we don't make it that comfortable for ourselves, but this is an opportunity where we can kind of develop some processes and jigs and tools that will make it easier on ourselves. And so it'll be kind of interesting to see how that affects the process. Uh, and also, you know, possibly just how easy it might be to then um, bring someone in with like minimal training to kind of do it. I mean, one of the main reasons why we want to do the final assembly on these is just to like for quality control, basically, because these pens need to be uh like perfect um like visually like and in, in, like functionally perfect and in the past a lot of our products d don't i think have it as the same amount of like a like aesthetic requirements in terms of like being flawless in terms of like little artifacts and stuff so that's part of the reason why we want to do the final assembly is we just want to we just want to like check them basically yeah and this is something that you would i mean i guess if it works you will but 
are you assuming that you would keep doing it for this product forever? Uh, maybe. Uh, yeah, it just depends. I mean, if it's a total pain, then no. But um, you know, it's unlikely that we would have this quantity to do at one time ever again. So it wouldn't won't be as painful. And if the process is like well done and easy, then. Yeah, I could see us doing it, especially if we do in the future, like smaller limited edition runs and stuff. We definitely want to be able to do the assembly ourselves. Um, so, yeah, we're working some of that out. I mean, we're also working out, you know, where the the like coating, the Cerakote is done because we it would be really nice if that was really local because then we could do smaller batches easily and stuff like that. So it's kind of a bunch of little moving parts. Um, none of them are scary. It's just, you know, kind of figuring out everything. So how's production? What's going on with production? Any is it has it grown a clip yet or no? Are we, are we, are we hasn't grown a clip, but we're done. We're all completely done with production. Uh, no, so we so we've been ironing out a couple things. Big questions. Um, one of the questions which we we've had for a long time is uh, basically how to accomplish the metal look for both for the knocks. And so uh, the silver one that's like nickel, that's really easy to do because we can just do nickel plating, very common process. It's tough. It doesn't corrode. It's just like really nice. That's why like like door handles and screws and things are nickel plated because it's like a really tough metal. Mm -hmm. The copper, however, is a problem. And we knew it was going to be a problem um, because copper corrodes a lot and quickly and so you know when you get a new penny it's really shiny but then not too long it turns into like a brown weird penny mm -hmm. um like it looks all dirty and splotchy and especially because the knock is going to be like touched with hands all the time it, it that, that's a problem you know we don't want a patina you don't want a nice patina going on no we don't want a nice patina we want it to stay the same uh, <laughs> ideally that's interesting to me i say there is um Quite often there are there are pens made of of copper and and brass, brass and, yeah. and stuff and and yeah and the patina of those is by some considered to be part of the yeah the like part of the reason you buy it but that is when the pen is entirely made of it I don't really know how much you you would necessarily want just a knock to change color but it's just it's just an interesting thing to note that like you guys are really set on the fact that you don't want that I would say personally in regards to this product. I would not want it to patina, um, but it's just interesting to see that that difference between I think what's what some people want and what you guys are looking for. Yeah, I think but I think patina can be definitely be cool in some instances, but in this case, mm -hmm. it's just like you have a brown knock now. <laughs> like it's just like yeah, your knock is now brown. <laughs> yeah. And it would change very quickly on just one portion, right? Like the top of it would, yeah. would patina quickly, and the sides probably not so much. Yeah, and copper is like relatively soft, so it scratches easily. There's like all kinds of issues with just raw copper, um, and so there's a couple options. We, you know, that we could go. We could we could get it co coated basically with like a clear. There's like lots of different really tough clear coatings you can like put on top of it. Um, the downside with those is, you know, it might they, it is possible for it to scratch off, and eventually we've heard that it will like per patina and corrode even through that mm. like um coating somehow um so what what we're excited about doing is actually um getting the, definitely the cover and possibly the the nickel one is actually do a pvd coating 
um, on them. And I actually had to like look up what PVD stands for because it's like a, I always forget the acronym. It's a very long word. Um, but basically, it's a coating that you, like if you get a drill bit uh, from like the hardware store and it's like yellow looking or some like color that's not metal or black, um, that is PVD coating. And basically it's like a, it, it stands for physical vapor disposition uh, or de- deposition, sorry. But basically they like put metal pieces in this chamber uh, under pressure and they like kind of like they call it like stutter or sputter like somehow metal at things and it like it it changes the surface of the material it doesn't actually like plate it but it like actually changes the like first layer of the surface it's very i don't fully understand it but it's like a chemical process but basically what happens is the thing that comes out are very very hard um, finishes that do not scrape off. The only way you can scrape them off is by like removing the metal. And so um, the only problem there is that there's it's hard to find a PVD finish that looks like raw copper that looks like perfectly like raw copper. So that's where that's where we're trying to kind of uh, get the find the right supplier and find the right process. But if we can. Uh, PVD will be awesome because it can look really good and it's very, very durable and it never corrodes and it like never scratches off. So if we can get the right look we want, it's a really awesome solution. Um, so that's what we're, we're you know, getting samples and we're trying to find um, the right thing, which I think we can. I think we've basically found it. Um, so that's exciting because that, that it's like way more durable than... Um, than what we were thinking. Our kind of original plan was to do copper, like a copper-plated thing, and then, uh, you know, do a clear coat to protect it. But this would be, like, a better, longer-lasting situation. Um, and then part of, if we did PVD, we would actually change the knock to uh, titanium instead of aluminum. And so that will also really help with the durability. So it it feels like a really good solution, Uh and so, yeah, we're, I think it's going to work out. We're, like I said, we're not, compl- you know, we have to get samples and do some tests and stuff to kind of mm-hmm. double check. But so that's a, that's a cool, it feels really good because that, that was one part of the pin we were worried about was just like the durability and like scratch resistance of the knocks because, you know, they're like shiny and we want them to look good like jewelry. Um, and this process, it's funny, this PVD process I like discovering is used for like everything. Like if you go to, if you buy a door handle and it looks like it's brass or it looks like it's shiny nickel, it's neither of those things. It's likely steel, uh, very thin steel, like mild steel with the PVD process. Like PVD is used for everything. Like if you get cheap jewelry or just jewelry from a store that's not solid gold or solid rose gold, it's actually likely a PVD process. It's like some cheaper metal. You can also apply it to plastic. So it's any plastic that looks like metal is PVD. And uh, say the like Apple watch, the like um, DLC coating, that like black coating that people like love on the stainless steel is PVD, basically. Um, It's like Diamond Lake Crystal DLC. So it's a very common, very, very common process. Um, And so that's great because there's lots of places that can do it. But it's just the colors are pretty limited. So that's our kind of only sticking point. Uh, You should just briefly explain why the knock needs to be titanium instead of aluminum. Yes. So uh, 
for technical reasons. So aluminum is um, aluminum is just really difficult to plate in general because aluminum corrodes basically instantly uh, once it's like it, like if you freshly machine aluminum soon as it is exposed to the air it like corrodes very quickly and that corrosion layer prevents like adhesion of plating or pvd or anything oh, okay. and so to, to pvd to put pvd coating on aluminum you have to coat them first in like chrome or nickel um and then do the pvd and so it adds a lot of cost and it's actually like inconsistent and and complex whereas titanium you can just like do a titanium part and put it straight like into the pvd process and so um P- aluminum is quite a bit more expensive to get parts made in but um for the knock it's pretty simple so it's not too bad and at the end it will probably be cheaper or a similar price but it's like way more durable and, and easier and simpler so that uh that's why we're doing titanium and we could do steel but that starts to introduce a weight problem yeah oh yeah. interesting i did yeah. i did wonder i didn't necessarily think oh why didn't you choose steel but i just wondered why titanium because mm-hmm. Does titanium introduce any problems of its own? Like, it can be soft to work with, right? No, it's not... Well, it depends. It's hard. It's harder than aluminum Mm -hmm. or some aluminums. Uh, It's just... And it's very strong. Um, It's not as strong as stainless steel. That's a complex question because there's so many grades. But aluminum is a a real pain to machine. You mean titanium? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Aluminum is very easy to machine. Titanium is is like a real pain to machine. It it, it really... um, wears down tools it's hard on tools it's just difficult to do technically difficult to do so a lot of places don't like running titanium parts because it's like it's hard um so yeah so we you know we look for a second at making the entire pin out of titanium and it would be very very expensive uh but so that so that's one piece is the the pvd knock coating and stuff so that's a fun that's like a fun change. Um, so that's one piece of the updates. There's a there's been a bunch happening, but that's kind of one of the more exciting ones. If you're changing the knock, what what is being seen, like what is poking out to titanium, are you changing any of the mechanism, or is that remaining aluminium? Another complex train of things. So um, it's remaining aluminum, but we for a second we're looking at doing it in stainless steel. Um, we decided it would be too heavy, but we are switching to a grade of aluminum called 7075, which is as strong as some stainless steels, just depending on the stainless steel. Um, and, but it's still really easy to machine. And then we're actually going to nickel plate, uh, that aluminum, um, just to make it like glide easier and to like reduce wear. So we're really kind of going, I mean, I think this is partially just because we have the quantities we have with the Kickstarter. Right. We're able to do some of these things that we weren't sure we were going to able to do because they're more expensive. Like that yeah. grade of aluminum is more expensive. The nickel plating is more expensive. But what it means for all the backers out there is we're making like a more and more awesome pin. Like this me- mechanism is going to be like, really strong and really smooth and like last a very long time because we get to do this stuff like the pvd coating and the nickel plated higher grade of aluminum so that's like feels really great that we can just like keep making this thing more and more bomb proof and it was already going to be pretty bomb proof but now it's just like more it's like better and better and better so that feels really good will the copper knock mechanism be nickel plated no so it so they'll both be titanium and then one will either be nickel plated like straight up normal nickel plated or like a pvd 
uh, something that looked at PVD that looks like nickel. And then the other one will definitely be PVD copper if, if the color's right. Um, so, but they'll be, they'll be titanium because we okay. want the weight to be the same and just for simplicity. Because, so what we could see doing down the line, and that, that's the other great thing about PVD is like, there's, uh, we can do more stuff with the color of the knocks and possibly the barrel of the pin someday where we could like do some weird PVD brass coating on the body and like knock the pin to make something that, you know, that's really shiny, but still light. So I don't know, there's lots of fun options that we could do eventually with the PVD stuff. You've you found a new thing, right? Like Cerakote. <laughs> yeah. Like you found a new thing and it, I guess it's opening up different ideas. Where do you even find out about something like PVD? Is this something that's recommended by a manufacturer or is this research that you're doing? It's just research we're doing okay. and it's, you know, it's unfortunate. I wish... Like the the thing I want most in the world is like a room with every material and like surface finish in the world, and I could just like go into it. You'd never leave though. That's you the know. problem. You oh. just, you'd well, you get know, lost. So no, no, I'm I'm sorry. It's at my house, <laughs> and I could just wander in there, and I could just be like whatever I need. Um, so you know, it's just research, basically, just like trying to figure out like oh, you know, you know, copper, blah blah blah, and you know the, you know, that's I mean, it's part of our uh, ignorance is because. You know, if we had experience making, you know, consumer like home, go- like door handles and stuff, it's like a no duh. Oh, PVD, what do you mean? It's like a very old common process. But, you know, we just don't know everything. So often we'll get surprised by finding some process we didn't know about. But yeah, it's usually just like Google, basically just like hunting around and then find some, finding some reference on Google and then getting excited about it. So um, that's usually how it happens. Eventually we'll know everything in the world, but it might take, you know, couple decades (laughs) have you had any more thoughts about the location for manufacture like obviously some of it's going to be hand assembled in a garage somewhere in texas (laughs) but where is the stuff going to come from uh well um it's tbd uh so we initially before the campaign we were like pretty dead set on getting them made in the u.s and as close physically close to us as possible and we can still do that we have quotes and uh some suppliers that where we can do that um but we like just decided to give it a shot and put and like get the parts quoted on mfg.com which is kind of like a place where you can get things quoted and we just like let china folks bid on it and the prices came back like a third of what the u.s is um yeah and so basically and and a couple of the companies we actually got like good recommendations from u.s companies who have used them and so we're cautiously proceeding with uh trying to get these things made in china and so what we're going to do is we are uh i mean actually tonight i'm going to be on the phone with them kind of making sure they understand the drawings and all of our requirements and everything and they're going to make a sample set of 50 like of everything, like a sample set of 50 parts using the processes and like everything that the finals would be. So they'll be, they should be identical to like what the final production run is, um, which is a little bit costly for us. But if they pull that off and do it perfectly, um, then I think we might pull the trigger uh, and let them do the whole production run. Um, And, you know, there's a couple of reasons why we decided to like go down this road. I mean, we've been like burned by China by like china suppliers in the past and it's like it's something that i'm always curious about doing and dan's always like 
I don't know, man. It's such a pain. And usually I'm like, yeah, no, you're right. It is a pain. But in this case, the cost differences were so vast. It was like, you know, we'll save like $50,000 um, that it's worth like, it's worth giving it a try. Um, and so we're going to cautiously give it a try and see what happens. The other reason why it like felt like the right thing is they're honestly just hustling so hard. So like on MFG, you know, it's like this place where you, you kind of put up drawings and quotes on the internet and then um, it like sends them out to, you know, suppliers all, like all around the world and they get back to you with a quote. A lot of these China suppliers would get back to us in like a day or maybe two days at the most. And all the U.S. suppliers took like like a week or two weeks to get back to us with a quote. And it's just like really frustrating to us. It feels like especially for some reason with a lot of these parts, I guess because they... Some of them are a little bit challenging to make. It just, it feels a little bit like the U.S. suppliers, like, don't, just, like, don't want to bother with, like, like, work, like, working with us or something. Yeah, I, just to jump in real quick, I won't, you know, I won't name the company to throw anyone under the bus, but one of the companies we got a quote from literally said, like, I would, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sad if this was someone else's problem, basically. Like, this part is kind of hard to make, and, like, what? we don't want to make it, more or less. <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh, great. That fills me with confidence yeah. that you're going to do a really good job right. on this. <laughs> well, well what's, what's hilarious, it's like a company we work with a lot, right? And they do really good work. But, and it, so they're being, can like, they're being candid. So that's good. But also, it just feels, it's like, why, like, why should we have to twist your arm to do this? To give like, you, you money. Know, I mean, why, why should we have to twist your arm to give you money? Yeah, exactly. To do what and, you do. Right. That's so strange. And, and, and and we're asking for a quote from them. We didn't even give them a target price, right? So it's not like we're like making some price demand that's like, you know, crazy. So um, so it's just kind of like rubs us the wrong way. And it's like well, these China companies, like they are, they're hustling so hard. Like they really want our business. And so like literally when we were having this podcast, like I got two calls from like China Skype. Like when I go on Skype, I always get people from China, like the salespeople like checking <laughs> in with me. So, uh, so, but that just you know, in one way, it feels good. Like, it feels good. Like, it feels like you get a lot of attention and stuff. But obviously, there are, like, huge communication problems and, like, quality issues and stuff. Yeah, often. like, we've spoken about this stuff so many times on the show. I think even on yeah. our last episode, like, when you were saying that you were thinking about doing it all in the U.S. because of the issues that it can pose. So you don't have parts stuck on a boat somewhere for six weeks. Yeah, exactly. And so like I said, we're going to like very cautiously like wade into this, see what happens. Um, the funny thing is like, if we go to China, it'll be way faster in terms of like them delivering the parts. Uh, so it's like, it's worth to like spend the extra couple of weeks to like, see if this happens. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're going to see what happens and, uh, you know, hopefully it goes well. Cause like, honestly, if, if we could find a supplier for like turned, like for CNC, like, fancy metal parts that we could really rely on in Asia, that would be like so great because they turn around quotes so quickly and they're like willing to just like make small sample runs of things. It like really helps our development process if we have that resource. Um, so like, like I'm like, there is no way like, so the, the fact that they're willing to do this run of 50 sets of parts for like, I think it's like 1200 bucks or something. Uh, we could we could not find a U.S. supplier to run one of the six parts for twelve hundred bucks fifty. Like they just would not do it. Or they would charge like way more money. It's just they're just more willing to do stuff. So it's it 
it's like a great uh it's a great way if we had that relationship it would be a great way to do like product development stuff so that's also we're just like really hopeful but of you know hey talk to us in two months and we'll tell you uh how great it's going (laughs) but it uh but we're at least gonna give it a little bit of a try and we're being like very very conservative with that try so we'll see yeah and i think another thing to note is i think part of the willingness uh for us to try this is we have a backup plan, which is just make it in the U S. So if we try to do this and it goes horribly wrong and they can't deliver parts, we'll just, you know, eat the costs and, you know, have it made in the U S and that'll, you know, that'll stink if that happens. But I think we're willing to, you know, shoulder that risk because, uh, the benefits could be pretty substantial. One of the biggest differences, I guess one of the biggest problems that, you know, you've mentioned this before, it's like it's it's the communication, it's things going wrong, things getting missed off, um, you know, which can be solved by, as you spoke about in regards to the panel book, driving to the factory, going in, spending the day with them, just finalizing things in person before the big red button is pushed and thousands of these things are made. Is this something that you are able to replicate when working with a Chinese manufacturer realistically? I think it depends. Um, in this case, it probably would not work very well. Um, in a lot of cases, it would. So like when we, we made the foam, molded foam parts for the neat ice kit in China. And if we just would like went over there uh, from the very beginning, it would have like went way more smoothly because there was a lot of problems with just like aesthetics, fit and finish that we we could have like very, they could have iterated and like quickly worked out. Um, in this case, uh, there's basically no reason to like see parts from them unless they were made on the actual production machines um, using the actual production process. And the setup for that takes so long and it's, it's that um, they basically have to like, set that up, run the parts, and then we check them. And so be, physically being there at, doesn't actually save us much time because, you know, they could just, like, overnight the parts to us, basically, um, and we could check them out. Because they can't, like, iterate on that process, really, um, th- that, like, easily with us standing there um, just because of the nature of the way this manufacturing of these parts work. So in this case, I don't know if we will. Maybe, maybe like, if they end up doing some parts of the assembly or something, I could see it mm-hmm. happening. Um but in terms of like this initial test and, and like getting the quality right, it's really just about making sure our we have all the specifications and like that we have communicated that to them and they actually understand what we're expecting in terms of like surface finish and dimensions and and that's what's great about these metal turn to metal parts is you know you can really specify everything um, and often that's not the case but here we can say okay we need like this level of surface finish and like these exact dimensions so yeah it's just like it's interesting to me that there is a problem with this stuff because like i would expect that there are plans right like that you've designed this thing and and you know that it works right so like is this not just a file you can give them and say, like, we want this and this and this and this? Unfortunately, it's more complex than that. So, so yeah, there is a file. Like, if we can give them a 3D file, the real thing is uh, 2D drawings are the real kind of... It's like the, that's the contract between you and the, the manufacturer, basically. But the, the problem is... Uh, often, the problem is, like, they miss something. Like, they just miss a feature or miss... Or they just do it wrong. 
um, which is easy to do. There's like a lot of, there's, you know, probably like 60 dimensions on each part that they have to hit right. Um, another problem is just straight up surface finish. And, um, you know, when you're machining something on a machine, it takes a lot of like craft uh, and artfulness, even though it's a machine doing it, it's very precise. You have to get the speeds and feeds, as they say in the business, uh, <laughs> right um, for it to look good. And if you don't have a, like a supplier who cares to like, set it upright and do test runs to make sure it's right before they like really press go, you're going to have problems. And so our hope is that they want to make quality parts exactly as spec and they'll like do they'll like work on it until it's right. Um, but if that doesn't happen, then we'll have problems. And so that's really the thing It's like, so like in the US, we've in general, we found that when we work with suppliers, they really police themselves. Like they understand the level of quantity or quality we want. And if something's wrong, they will find the problem and tell us about it and then correct it. Often with uh, like suppliers from other countries like Asia, they don't do that second step where they like, they don't necessarily understand the level of quality we want. And they just like want to make it and get it out the door and they don't like double check themselves. And then so we get the parts and there's always a surprise like, oh, this wasn't what we wanted or whatever. They missed something or they didn't do this right. And so that's really the magic is like, can they do the internal or are they willing? They can definitely do it. But are they willing to like do the internal check to make sure it's right? Because like absolutely guaranteed suppliers in Asia can make these parts correctly. It's not like they don't have the skill. It's really about do they have the, do we share uh, our like vision of like what the quality should be? And then are they willing to QC themselves basically? And so often when you're having things made in Asia, you'll have a, a, like a member of your team there to do that QC step to like be like point right. things out right to them. But in this case, like the parts uh, the setup time is like a big part of it. So it's like, I don't know, I guess if we like spent like a month there, it would work, but neither of us are willing to do that because we have like young kids and stuff. So it's just, you know, and we could find a middleman, but then it's tricky. So I think in this case, if they can do these sample parts right, it like shows that they, you know, they, they, they like were on the same page basically. So that's what we're hoping for. We'll see. You've got a lot ahead. Like, maybe more than i had expected <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we haven't even got into the like you know coding the seracode i mean yeah there's a ton of stuff and that's like what the work always is it's like you know we have this plan right uh but it's yeah it's just like this is the hard part basically it's easy to do the design work and like have some fantasy about how something will exist but We've been on the road long enough to expect problems. And now we just do a lot of work to like try to cut them off at the pass um, before they even happen. So, yeah, it's, you know, and we know something's going to be wrong. Like I will be flabbergasted and shocked if these sample parts come back flawless. Um, But maybe they will. Thoroughly Considered is a joint production between Relay FM and Studio Neat. You can find out more about this show at relay.fm slash tc slash 38. And hey, if you're enjoying it, please share this episode with a friend. <laughs>